Before we get into this episode, I have some breaking news to share with you. Rodney Reed has been granted a stay of execution, and I want to thank every one of you who took action, who signed the petition, who made phone calls, who wrote letters. Your actions matter, and this is a good day. At least we have a chance now to reopen this case and prove his actual innocence once and for all. The year was 1996. Stacy Stites and police officer Jimmy Fennell were engaged to be married, but Stacy was having an affair with a man named Rodney Reed. On April 23, 1996, Stacy's body was discovered, strangled, on the side of a dirt road near Bastrop, Texas. Her fiancé, Jimmy Fennell, was a prime suspect until three of Rodney Reed's intact spermatozoa were found inside her body. During trial, the state alleged that Rodney intercepted Ms. Stites on her 3 a.m. drive to work and proceeded to rape and murder her. With no other physical evidence of Rodney in the car or at the scene, the forensic science of the time incorrectly asserting that intact spermatozoa could not survive past 24 hours, and Stacy's whereabouts being known within the 24 hours prior to her death, Rodney Reed was sentenced to death in 1998. It is now common knowledge that intact spermatozoa can be found at least 72 hours after release, and all of the state's forensic expert witnesses have since disavowed their testimonies. Reed continues to maintain that the spermatozoa that the investigation discovered was the result of consensual intercourse that transpired well over 24 hours prior to her death. On this episode of Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom, we go to death row to speak with Rodney Reed. We'll also speak with his attorney, Bryce Benjet, his brother, Roderick Reed, Dr. Phil, and the world-renowned forensic expert, Dr. Michael Bodden, will retell his compelling sworn testimony that rules out Rodney as the potential perpetrator and disputes the time of death. This is Wrongful Conviction. Senior staff attorney for the Innocence Project and Rodney's legal counsel, Bryce Benjet, came by to tell us about Rodney's case. I mean, we know that on April 23, 1996, Stacy Stites was found strangled and killed in Bastrop, Texas. She was last seen, of course, with her fiance, Jimmy Fennell. And the search for Stacy started when she failed to report for her 3.30 a.m. shift at the grocery store where she worked. Jimmy's truck, of course, which he testified that she used to drive herself to work that morning, was found in a high school parking lot at 5.23 a.m., and Stacy's body was discovered later that afternoon, that same day, lying face up near an unpaved road. So the state argued that Roddy didn't know her, but rather that he intercepted her on her way to work, gained entry somehow to her truck, sexually assaulted and strangled her, and transported her to the remote unpaved road where her body was discovered. All the while, and this is key, not leaving any other evidence behind other than the sperm in her body. And this theory was built, importantly, on three pillars. The three spermatozoa that were found, right? Yeah. The testimony from three forensic experts who maintained that sperm does not stay intact for longer than 24 hours after intercourse, which, of course, we know that it does. And that Stite's whereabouts were accounted for most of the day before she was murdered, thereby ruling out the consensual sex with Reed as an explanation for the presence of his sperm. And of course, the testimony from Jimmy Fennell, who said that she left at 3 a.m. for work in his truck. 
But take us back and explain some of these circumstances and how the state developed this narrative that we now know not only isn't true, but couldn't possibly be true. Yeah, it's interesting because when you go back and you look at how crimes ought to be investigated, there were many sort of obvious errors that were done initially. Nobody looked at the apartment that Stacy Stites shared with Jimmy Finnell, even though that was the last place she was seen. That is sort of police work 101. There were not adequate notes taken of interviews of Jimmy Finnell, who was later the key source of the timeline of the state's case. But as the investigation actually progressed, Jimmy Finnell soon emerged as the prime suspect in the case and was investigated. He was aggressively interrogated. He was subjected to polygraphs. Which he failed. Which he failed. And this took place even after the police knew that it was not his semen that was collected from Stacy's body. And so the notion that the person whose semen is in that body must be a rapist and a murderer was not the operating theory of the investigation until they matched that semen to Rodney, a person of color. And so there is where you have an investigation of the person who uh, looks like he had opportunity, motive, um, had a record consistent with this kind of behavior. And as soon as Rodney was identified as the source of that semen, this suddenly turned around to a sexual assault murder that had to be committed by him. So now Rodney becomes the suspect. The state argued that Rodney didn't know the victim. He did, in fact. He was having a relationship. But we now have numerous witnesses that have come forth who had no connection to Rodney, right? Not just the ones that did have a connection to Rodney, his relatives who knew he was seeing her, but now others, strangers to him. Yeah, and th this was a big issue at, at the trial. Just to back up, I mean, this trial was rushed to say at the best. At the trial, the defense lawyers were presenting what Rodney had told him, which he could back up with witnesses. He, he said, I was seeing Stacy. It was an occasional thing. It was casual. We were with each other the night before uh, her death. So not the night of April 22nd, 23rd, but the night of April 21st, 22nd. So that was the theory that was presented at the trial. But unfortunately, the defense lawyers did not do the work or have the time to do the work to actually present that evidence to the jury. Even what little evidence that Rodney's defense lawyers were able to present uh, about this relationship, about the explanation, was completely negated by the prosecution's experts who said that it was impossible for Rodney's semen to be there based on consensual sex because of this 24-hour time frame. At that point, right, any juror is going to go, well, that's, I mean, you can't explain that away. No, and, and it was clearly important to the jury because they asked about it during their deliberations, and the judge actually read that invalid testimony back to them while they were deciding whether or not to convict Rodney Reed. But now um, we know from the top experts in the field, including Dr. Baden, um, that in fact, the actual amount of time that the spermatozoa can uh, survive or, or that can be detected, I guess, uh, up to 72 hours. And all you need to do is open a forensic pathology textbook. Wow. And so you don't you need an expert. That. And so we've gone back now to the state's forensic pathologist, the person who did the autopsy, 
who has disclaimed the testimony that was offered at the trial. We've gone back to the Texas Department of Public Safety, who has clarified that although their analysts said 24 hours, the science says 72. And we've gone back to the private DNA lab, who their expert also testified about this 24-hour time frame. And that private DNA lab has likewise recanted that opinion, said it was in error. Um, and so the foundation of the state's case, uh, which completely negated Rodney's ability to defend himself, is gone. And then in its place, we've consulted with the leading forensic pathologists in the country, uh, Michael Bodden, Werner Spitz, uh, Leroy Riddick, and uniformly, they have said that when you look at this body, uh, she had been killed hours before the state alleged that she was killed, which is a time that she, uh, according to Jimmy Finnell, was at home with him in her apartment. My production crew and I flew to Houston, Texas, and drove about an hour outside the city to the Polunsky unit, where Texas Department of Criminal Justice houses death row inmates. We were instructed to leave everything but our inspected and approved production equipment in the car, went through security, and finally reached Rodney Reed for our non-contact interview through bulletproof plexiglass on death row. All right. Good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I mean, my heart is heavy, obviously, but, uh, but I want to talk about you. And thank you for talking with me. First of all, how are you doing now? I mean, you've been through this before. You had an execution date in 2015. So this is the second time around. Yes. Well, I'm, as well as to be expected, I mean, you know, I have my days, but I'm good. You know, with meditation, reading, I, I try to stay up on current events. I try to distract myself from what's going on, you know, with other things, you know, as far as stimulating my mind, I'll, I'll read magazines, read newspapers. Uh, I really like reading the comments with, with my supporters, you know, they, they have comments that, that I read and they're, they're inspiring to me. Well, you're inspiring to them. I mean, they're writing to the governor, they're signing petitions that I'm putting out, that the Innocence Project is putting out. And it's extraordinary. It's, it's somewhat encouraging to see that, you know, and I think it's going to make a difference. I hope so. And so I want to go back, if it's okay with you, back to 1996. Um, you're a young man, good-looking guy. Um, yeah, well, I was a young man, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're still a good-looking guy, but... Um, but you're a young guy, and you meet, you meet this woman, Stacy Stites. It was a romantic situation. Uh, we know it was a consensual situation. You met her uh, um, at a at a, um, a Diamond Shamrock. It was a it was a convenience store, gas station like type, but they had a game room and all that. And it. was it love at first sight? Was it like a lightning bolt hit you? Or? I, I would I wouldn't say it like that. You know, I was just there. We were just hanging out. I'm at a jukebox selecting songs and she walks in you know and i wouldn't say it was no love at first sight you know because we ended up playing pool you know striking up conversation and it was just good and then sometime after that you obviously there was chemistry there and you started seeing each other yeah yeah discreet you know and then at some point she started seeing jimmy Finnell. no she was already seeing him you know I was already seeing someone else, you know. That was part of the reason why we kind of kept it discreet. Do you think you were in love with her? Or was it more just a, just young people having fun? We were having fun. There was chemistry there, but I wouldn't 
I wouldn't say that I was in love with her because uh, I think if I would have been in love with her, I'd have cut everything else off, you know. And I don't th really think that she was in love with me because she would have been the same way. She would have cut everything off on that end, you know. How long had you been seeing Stacy when you when she was murdered? And I met her in late October, early November of '95. Her death was in April, so I would say what six months, six six months. And that, and how did you find out about it on the news? Yeah, yeah. When I heard it on the news, I didn't want to believe it. This is not the Stacy. So yeah, I was I was I was quite shocked. When they when they flashed her picture, I didn't want to believe it. Because I was just with her, I didn't want to believe it. You were just with her, like late night Sunday, early morning Monday, and she was murdered on a. Tuesday, the 23rd. Yeah. All I can do is tell you that I'm innocent. I had nothing to do with that. Three sperms. I was with her the night before. I mean, you learn that basic biology, that in a pinhead drop, you're looking at millions. That's just, just a pinhead drop. I mean, for the state's own experts to come back and recant, you know. All three of them. And then we know that Jimmy was the original suspect. Um, we know they kind of circled up the wagons and, you know, protected him. Right. Um, he failed two polygraphs. We know all the facts of the yes, case. Yes, yes. What, what would you most want people to know about the evidence? If you were to say to a stranger or somebody who's watching this right now, go, well, I don't know. He's in there. It must be something. To well, um, the time of death. Dr. Michael Bodden is about as decorated a forensic expert as you can get including having served as chairman of the Forensic Pathology Panel for the House Select Committee on Assassinations, investigating the assassinations of no less than President John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. He studied the evidence in Stacey Stites' murder case and gave testimony at a hearing back on October 11, 2017, when Rodney was seeking a new trial. I think that my opinion is solid in, in this matter and disagrees with the prosecutor's opinion. It disagrees on almost every important point that the prosecution used to convict Rodney. Is that fair to say? Well, it, it disagrees on the time of death, the place of death, and whether or not a sexual assault had occurred. Right. Well, those are pretty much it. And then there's the issue of lividity, which plays into yeah. all of these things. The right? lividity uh, is a measure of time of death. When we die, certain processes in our body stop. The heart stops functioning, blood stops moving around, and the blood itself, similar to when you give blood at a blood bank, the blood is about 45% solid material, red cells, white cells, and platelets, and plasma on top, the yellow-tinged clear fluid. From the time of our birth to the time we die, the heart not only pumps blood around, but also churns it up. So when blood comes out, one sees red blood, and you don't see the separation. When blood goes into a bag in a blood bank, after a few minutes, one sees the solid material settling down. So you have all the red cells, the majority of the solid material, coming to the bottom, 40, 45% of the volume. That's what happens after death. After we die, the blood, instead of being all churned up, starts settling out with the red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets settling to the bottom. Gravity. By gravity. So whatever part of the body is downward against the ground, 
will get a, a bluish purple color of the settled red blood cells. That's called lividity. And why is this so important in, in the case of Stacy Stites? Because it tells two things to the medical examiner, the coroner coming to the scene. The first thing we look for always is, did the person die here or was the body moved after death? Just an automatic initial impression. When we see inappropriate lividity, that is lying on the back as occurred here, but the discoloration is in the front, it means the, that individual, the decedent here, was laying face down for at least four or five hours for the blood to settle, causing the bluish discoloration of lividity. She could not have died in that position. If she had died in that position, all the lividity would be near the ground. And that's a certainty. That's, that's a certainty. certainty. Right. This is a change in the body that uh, happens to everybody after death, but just the laws of gravity. But for the lividity to settle and not turn, if a, if a body is moved within an hour after death, it's like one of these snow globe that you let the snow settle to the bottom, then you turn it over and it settles in the other direction. If in an hour or two one turns the body over, then all the blood goes in the other direction. But after four or five hours, the lividity becomes uh, fixed because the red blood cells started going out of the blood vessels and all, so that if you turn it over after four or five hours, the inappropriate lividity will remain and won't disappear. So in order for us to see the lividity on the front, not only was she laying face down, but she was laying face down in these circumstances at least four or five hours. So we could tell from that that she was moved from a place that she was laying face down and that she had to be in one position for at least four or five hours before she was moved. Another thing that happens when we die is that the tissues start to decompose because it's not getting the usual oxygen supply. So the first tissues that decompose are the lining cells of the mouth, the nose, and also the intestinal tract. They just start dying. In the nose and mouth, the dying tissues mix up with whatever fluids are present and a thick maroon-type uh, discharge will occur. Mm. She had to be laying face forward and nose and mouth free for fluids to leak out. And this would happen in a car. The purge fluids were in the um, uh, passenger side, and that would be coming out of her nose and mouth, and the lividity would be developing to some extent on the fact that she's leaning forward. In this case... Since the prosecution argument is that the defendant met her at 3 a.m. and she died after 3 a.m., laying in one position for, for at least four or five hours until 8 a.m., and there's evidence that she was dead in the car before 5.30 because in the car one has purge fluids. So she's dead for at least four hours before she's taken out of the car. And, of course, we know that the car was found at 5.23 a.m., so it actually is not possible. This scenario cannot have happened. You can't have five hours in two hours. That's right. The lividity and the purge fluids in the car would establish that she was dead laying face down closer to midnight, but definitely before 3 o'clock in the morning. The fiancé, Jimmy Fennell, in his own words, under oath at trial, he stated that he was home with her from 8 p.m. the night before until uh, she left for work around 3 in the morning the next day. 
and I think you've made it very clear that it is your expert opinion um, to a degree, of, a very high degree of certainty, that that was the time that she was murdered. It is my opinion that she was murdered and strangled well before 3 a.m., closer to midnight, uh, and that Mr. Fennell was there. Maybe somebody else came in and did it. I can't say that he did it, except that he was the only one there. How certain are you that Rodney could not have committed this crime? I am certain beyond all reasonable doubts that she was dead before she could possibly have met with Rodney, that he could not possibly have strangled Stacy after three o'clock in the morning. To a reasonable certainty, maybe we're up to 98, 99% that, that as far as any testimony in any trial in the standards used, he could not have committed the crime. If this execution goes forward, how are you going to process that information? It would, it would be terrible in a number of ways. Number one, there are people who've been executed who turn out to be innocent, clearly. Even if he's exonerated, it's horrible that he's been in prison for so long, during which time whoever the real murderer is, is free to go about harming other people. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people. What do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best. And then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more 
go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. I want to talk about the fact that this officer had a very uh, troubling history of misconduct and that in fact sometime after Rodney's arrest and conviction Jimmy himself was arrested and convicted. Yeah and I think we need to go back and just look at who Jimmy Fennell was at the time and and who he continues to be. Even before the time of the murder there were signs that things weren't right with Jimmy. in February of 1996, so this is two, two months, a little more before the murder, there's an incident in which he chases down a young Hispanic man in the small town that they, he's a patrol officer. He's alleged to have beat him and put a, a gun to this kid's head. He was sued for that, alleging police misconduct and police brutality. That suit was settled. So he had a record of misconduct, and that's just not even the half of it. Just looking from the time around the murder, a woman that Jimmy Fennell was dating in Giddings described him as emotionally abusive, possessive, virulently racist, and when she broke off with him the relationship, he stalked her. You know, I, I remember one day, you know, opening up the newspaper and reading about Fennell's rest for a alleged sexual assault while on patrol. And he ultimately pled guilty to related charges that arose from an incident in which he was called out to assist a young woman. And instead of helping her, drove her out, kidnapped her, raped her, and then dropped her back off in the situation that he was supposed to protect her from. She, with just incredible bravery, calls 911 and reports it. And what happens? Jimmy Fennell comes back out, intercepts her, arrests her, and thankfully the police ultimately took this seriously and and Fennell was prosecuted. And convicted. And convicted, pled guilty to charges, served essentially every day of a 10-year sentence. He was, quote-unquote, one of the state's finest, a police officer. You know, and these things happen. You know, you, you have police killings here, killing innocent people, you know, unarmed people. And the first thing they say, they was in fear for their lives. Right. But in here you have this police officer that's, that's uh, wasn't in fear for his life. He didn't give a damn about life. And uh, up until the time he got convicted of the crime he just got released from, um, I feel like the state enabled him. That, that, I mean... They should have been keeping their eye on it. When did you learn about Jimmy being arrested and charged with kidnapping and rape, which happened about 10 years after you were convicted? Yeah, it was... Um, on TV? No, I was listening to the radio. We don't have television here. You know, I listened to it hour on the hour, you know, and uh, just so happened I was... And I heard them talking about an officer being arrested for sexual assault in Williamson County, and it was getting closer and closer. And then when they said, Jimmy Fennell, I tried to kick the door off the hinges. I was like, I was elated, you know. I was kind of amped up, really. Did you think they would convict him? Uh, yeah. It wasn't until later on that my attorneys with the Innocent Project really started digging into that and pulling up the information. And I was like, well, 
okay, he's charged with this, but then they found out that he was under investigation and they found out about these other cases that he had been charged with, that his fellow officers pushed under the rug for him. And I was like, there's no way, this, this can't be happening. So even the law enforcement, the agency that he worked for was protecting him. Well, yeah, in your case, we know that it was his best friend on the force who, who was one of the lead investigators. When you look at the police investigation, this was not a one-off incident. Uh, police reports indicate that he had uh, credible allegations of raping at least one other woman in his custody and a pattern of abuse and sexual misconduct that went back years. One of the police reports talking about the rape allegations where he was on patrol he rapes a woman and then gives her his card saying, you know, you want to go out on another date. And so this is not somebody who's, at least the evidence shows, is tied to reality and somebody that we should be concerned about. I read somewhere that Officer Fennell, then Officer Fennell, had been overheard by a, a fellow officer bragging or exclaiming that if he ever found Stacy cheating on him, he would strangle her with a belt. Is that true? Yeah, so he was in a police training class. Um, he was a rookie cop when all this went down. And a classmate of his uh, was sort of in some sort of an argument with him. And, and he said, well, you know, if I ever catch my girlfriend cheating on me, um, you know, I'd kill her. And she made some response about how he would be, you know, identified or something. He said, no, they'll never get my fingerprints. I'll strangle her with a belt. Um, which, you know, obviously where you have Stacy strangled with a belt is just, you know, hard to understand. But then I mean, you got to put that in the context of everything that the police reports indicate about Jimmy and everything we subsequently know. When he talked to the police about this case early on, his statement was riddled with inconsistencies. The morning she disappeared but before her body was found, took out all the money in his bank account. Then the, the, the fact that two eyewitnesses have recently come forward and submitted signed affidavits, an insurance salesperson who said that Vanell threatened to kill Stacy while applying for life insurance, a deputy in the Lee County Sheriff's Office at the time of the murder, who Vanell made an incriminating statement to at Stacy's funeral, and Fennell's best friend at the time of the murder, Bastrop Sheriff's Deputy Curtis Davis, has now revealed that Fennell gave an inconsistent account of where he was on the night of the murder. He claimed to Officer Davis that he was out late drinking, and he later testified at trial that he'd spent a quiet evening at home with Stites at their apartment during what we now know to be the time of her death, based on no less than Dr. Michael Bodden's testimony. When asked to explain this discrepancy, Fennell invoked his Fifth Amendment rights, declining to testify to avoid possible self-incrimination. So, all of this adds up to a mountain of shit. Also, um, the breaking news is that there's a confession, right, that someone who was in prison with him has now come forward and signed an affidavit saying that Jimmy confessed to this fellow that he was in prison with that he had actually strangled her. The 
Many of you know Dr. Phil for his accomplishments, his legendary career in TV and entertainment. But what you may not know is that he was the founder of Courtroom Sciences, the first organization that made a science out of jury selection and other courtroom practices that lead to the type of outcomes that we all want, which is the right person getting convicted. You have made a very conscious decision to use your personal capital, your name value, your own financial resources, and most of all, your time to fly around the country to spend hours and hours helping someone who a few weeks ago was a total stranger to you. What's going on here? Why are you so passionately devoted to trying to save Rodney Reed's life? And, I don't, and that's not hyperbole. Well, I went down and, and spoke to the man, and... I did not go in there presuming he was innocent or guilty. I, I went down to talk to him, and I, I looked the man in the eye and asked him a lot of in-depth questions. Ask him some questions that there were right or wrong answers to in terms of whether he was telling the truth or not. I came away feeling like he was definitely a man of integrity and was clearly being victimized here. And... I really tried to be empathetic and thought if I was in that situation or one of my sons, which I have two, were in that situation, what would I hope and pray someone would do? And so I, I came back and really dove into the science and the evidence here, and I was appalled at what I found. This man has not had due process. I mean, he's not had a fair trial yet. And they've taken 22 and a half years of this man's life. And who knows what he would have done in those 22 years? You know, maybe he would have saved some people's lives. Maybe he would have gone to Iraq. Maybe he would have been a paramedic and saved lives. Maybe he would have been a thief and gotten shot. Who know? You don't know what somebody would have done, but he had the right to find out. He had the right to make those choices and know, and that was taken from him. And I frankly don't think this was a close call. I don't, you know, whether he did it or didn't do it, I don't think it was a close call. And if you watch the, the two hours that we devoted to this on the air, I brought on the defense lawyer for her fiance. I brought him on and I gave him a platform to speak from. I spoke to him after the show, away from the cameras, and he does believe Rodney Reed is guilty. And I let him speak, and he he said every every reason that he thought. I, I gave people the, I, I did not bury the negatives. I, I looked at both sides of this, and then I looked at the science, and it was very clear to me, he couldn't have done this. Even if he was the kind of character that would have done this, he couldn't have done this. And I don't believe he's the kind of character that would have done this. I, I didn't know him at the time, but I know him now. And I believe he is a good man that would be a good addition to this world and this community. And um, I, I just felt like, you know, I can't look this man in the eye, know what I know in my heart from the training that I have, and go home and go to dinner. How do you do that? How do you know what you know? and don't do something about it. You can't unknow it, that's for sure. First, they cited some DNA evidence. They said there was Rodney's sperm 
found inside her body. And to me, that's a lie by omission, because supposedly a rape took place at 3 a.m. the morning that she died. Now, they found her body at approximately 3 in the afternoon, about 12 hours later. At that time, had he raped her, there would have been millions of spermatozoa still viable inside her body. There were three sperm heads, which means they had deteriorated to the point that the bodies had fallen off the heads, and there were these three little microscopic heads in there. So that's about you know anywhere between three and, and 10 million off of the count of what it would be if he had had sex with her at the time that she was supposedly raped and killed. But they had been seeing each other, and, and he said he had sex with her before. And was that relationship real, or did he just make that up? Well, people he knows knew about it. People she knows knew about it. People that he didn't know knew about it. So people from both of their lives, they lived in two different worlds. And people in both worlds that didn't know each other both knew about their relationship. So the fact that they had a relationship, to me, is confirmed by people who don't know each other telling the same story. That explains to me the sperm in her body. Then when they found her body, the science of deterioration, lividity, the deterioration of the skin, what they found in the truck in terms of bodily fluids that had had come up, all the things that you know were on a timeline from death just simply didn't match that she had been dead for 12 hours when they found the body. It suggested she had been dead a whole lot longer than that. And she wasn't with Rodney during those earlier hours. She was with someone else. That is not contested. So if she was killed hours before they say she was killed, which the science says is true, he didn't do it. He wasn't with her. Nobody says he was with her then. She was with somebody else. And that is uncontested. There were no fingerprints in the truck. They didn't test for DNA. Of course, we now can test for contact DNA, et cetera, et cetera. But they didn't find any evidence of him being in that truck whatsoever. And there's just no evidence that connects him with that crime. And there is evidence that connects other people to that crime. So if you believe these world-class, world-renowned experts that have done thousands and thousands of autopsies, they say it's not possible that he did it. So given the science, he was not with her when she was killed. Game over. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule at your own pace and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. 
best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com wrongful. That's betterhelp.com wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com wrongful. Roderick Reed and his wife, Juana, have put everything, careers, social lives, personal matters, on hold to advocate for Rodney and found time to sit down with me. Roderick, uh, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. I'm sorry you're here, but hopefully we'll be able to help make a difference together and get the justice that we all want for Rodney. I wanted to ask you about growing up with your older brother. What was your childhood like? Was it a happy childhood? Oh, yeah, we had a good childhood. Uh, matter of fact, I come from a large family. I got five brothers. Wow. There are five brothers. Rodney is the fourth and I, and I'm the fifth. He always wanted a little brother, and when I came along, he had one, and he doted over me. He's been there every part of my life since I can remember up until uh, 1998 when they convicted him of this crime. So, And... When did you find out about Stacy's murder? We found about it out about it over the news, and uh, me and Rodney talked about it. And, and and his assumption was, I bet you, I I know that Jimmy Fennell did this, you know. And that's when I said, man, see, I told you, you know, that's when I told you, soul start. But at that time, we had no idea. We never dreamed. Rodney will be charged for Stacy's murder. What was that saying that your cousin had that that uh, you know almost portends this horrible scenario? It's never good to know a dead white woman. Something to that effect. It's profound and, and chilling um, when you think about how it actually played out in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing the history of how many black men were lynched Mm -hmm. for allegedly having sex, whether they did or didn't, Mm -hmm. with a white woman. And those weren't even cases in which an officer of the law was involved as a fiancé or anything else. Um, And in fact, I I can't help saying this, it feels like we're doing everything we can to prevent it. But if this, if the state of Texas goes forward with this execution, it's hard to call it anything other than a modern-day lynching. That's exactly what it is. It's, It's murder. In my eyes, they committed crimes when they convicted my brother by withholding evidence, by not giving them a fair trial, by not testing all the DNA. And now they set their sights on taking his life. And that is something that I cannot just sit back and say nothing or do nothing about. That is something that I have to, with every fiber in my body, stand up against and just get his story out here to do all that I can do. You know, um, that's what me and my family, that's what we're striving to do, all that we can do. And you are doing all that you can do, and it's become a major uh, national news story and a major cause as more and more people have become aware that this is such a not only tragic miscarriage of justice, but also such an obvious miscarriage of justice. Yes. You've been out there. You've been meeting with everybody. You've been on, on TV shows. You've been with Sister Helen. You've been crisscrossing the country, dropping everything else that, that's important to you to, to, to fight this fight. Yeah. My hat's off to you. Uh, how much hope do you have that justice will 
be delayed but not denied in this case? I'm very confident that after the world sees this, because I'm, I'm going to back up, my mom, quote my mom, when they convicted my brother on that day, she said, y'all may do whatever y'all going to try to do to my baby, but I guarantee you the whole world will know about it. And when she said that, I didn't realize that that was really what it was going to take. So I have great hope and, and faith and confidence that my brother will be vindicated and he is going to come home alive and well. I believe that. I have to believe that. I can't put nothing negative in my mind. I can't use my energy in that way. I believe it too, and we're you know there's there's so many good people involved in this fight now. Yes, it is, and it's growing every day. It's growing every day, yeah, every day, it. and and every and, day. and credit to you for for driving that that forward. So, Roger, people are listening now. What can somebody sitting at home? What can I do? First off, I tell everybody contact Governor Greg Abbott. Okay, call his office, write his office. Do the same with Ken Paxton, the Board of Pardons and Paroles. Contact them. Contact even Brian Gertz, Bastrop County District Attorney's Office. Pass the word. Tell everybody. Tag everybody on your social media sites. Help us get this word out. Tell the story. Tell the story. Refer people to our website, Facebook forward slash Reed Justice Initiative. That's the family's website. My mom, Sandra Reed, is the president. Get with us. So once again, that's facebook.com slash Reed Justice Initiative. That's facebook.com slash Reed Justice Initiative. Go to innocenceproject.org. Follow at Innocence Project on Instagram. Posting about Rodney every day. I'm posting about him just about every day on my Instagram at It's Jason Flom. I appreciate you being here to, you know, to shed light on this terrible injustice and to try to, you know, raise more awareness. Maybe there's someone listening who who knows the governor or who has uh, outreach, uh, someone who's listening who can write an article or blog or do whatever it is or raise uh, attention, uh, raise hell, because if not, it's going to be a very bad day in, in, in Texas and in America. At this point, we have a, a feature in this show. It's my favorite part of the show. And this is the part of the show that I call Closing Arguments. It's where, first of all, I thank you, Roderick, for coming to New York, being here in the studio with us, doing everything that you're doing. And now I get to kick back and turn my microphone off and, and leave it up to you for what I call Closing Arguments. Uh, what I want everybody to know is that Read Justice Initiative is not just about Rodney. It's about other people that find themselves in a similar situation. We're about getting justice for not just for Rodney, but for Stacy. And we want to help anybody out there that we can help along the way. But just know that right now, after we get Rodney home, we're going to be there to help anybody that needs help in the capacity that we can. 
when we first started this thing, it was all about Rodney. Now we see that, hey, there's a million other Rodney Reeds out there. And with the fire and tenacity that we have in bringing Rodney home, we're going to have the same fire and tenacity as the seeking justice and abolishing the death penalty. That's what we're going to do. Amen. Once again, closing arguments with Bryce Benjet. We at the Innocence Project are continuing to work on this case. Literally, we will be filing appeals in every court available, and we will investigate leads. So if there are folks out there who may know something, who have not come forward, please uh, reach out at the innocenceproject.org. And there is a petition that you can sign up for, but you can also send an email generally, which will ultimately get to me about any information that you have. Again, we this is an active investigation. So um, www.innocenceproject.org. Put Rodney Reed in the subject line. Bryce Ben Jett is our guest and is Rodney's lead attorney. We will investigate information that we get. And, and obviously, uh, this is a concern for everybody in our society, uh, because when we enforce a judgment like this, it is uh, in the name of the people. Um, and so if this is something that you are not comfortable with, and I don't think you should be, um, you should make your voice heard and uh, stand up for what's right in a case like this. Dr. Phil. You know, we're sitting here in November and 22 Thanksgivings and 22 Christmases have gone by with Rodney Reed not being able to touch a member of his family. And 22 Thanksgivings and 22 Christmases have gone by with him thinking that all the people that he does see are there to kill him. They're just waiting for a green light to take his life. And I am convinced that he's there with the full knowledge that he did not do the crime that he's in there for. And we have an opportunity to mark this holiday season by giving him the gift of his life back. And... You know, sometimes we think that in this world we're born, live, and die, and never make a difference. This is one of those times that you can make a difference. It doesn't take money. It doesn't take time. It just takes your presence and you stepping up and saying, I stand with Rodney Reed and all the other people that want him out of prison. And that includes law enforcement officers, state and federal legislators, people from all walks of life. Let's do a good thing. The governor of Texas is a former judge, and I think he's a fair man, and I think if he hears enough of us speak in a respectful way, I haven't gone to Austin and made a big grandstand show running up the steps of the Capitol with my hair on fire trying to embarrass the governor and all that. I haven't done that. I've been very respectful in the way that we've gone about this. And I intend to continue to do so if we keep making progress here. And now is the time to step up and make a difference. We're coming up on 3 million signatures for this petition for clemency. I would sure like to see that at 10 million. There's a point at which they simply cannot ignore the outcry. Let's take this time to give him the gift of his life back. And now, with a heavy heart, 
But with optimism, I am going to introduce our featured guest, Rodney Reed. One thing that I really miss was really being a father to my kids, you know, and, uh, and really to have an opportunity to be the grandfather to my grandchildren, you know. I just look forward to being out there with my family, with my friends, with my loved ones, with my supporters. I would really love to meet all of my supporters because uh, I feel that the support that has been generated behind me, that's been a real push been to keep me going, you know. When I, when I read their mail, read their letters, a lot of them I don't respond to, you know, but then there's, there's so much mail, I really don't have time to respond to all of them because then I, have to, I do have to get sleep, try to get some sleep. But uh, knowing that the people that are behind me, that are advocating for me, you know, I can name them all, Julie, Judy, Tiffany, Mary Beth, they're my real push. My mom, my brothers, uh, and my my daughter, my granddaughter's beautiful smiles. You know that 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 keeps me, that inspires me when I see a beautiful smile. Yeah. Uh, I look forward to holding them before they get too damn big. Uh, it's just so much. It's so much. The state of Texas is trying to take my life trying to execute me, strap me to a table and inject my body with, with poisons. Don't sit back and just let this happen. Just stay up, stay involved. You know, I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause, and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, at Wrongful Conviction, and on Facebook, at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1 and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.